0: Hi, this is Howard Jacobson and today I am thrilled to be on the phone with David Robinson Simon, the author of Metanomics. Hello, Dave.
1: Hey, Howard, how are you?
0: Very, very well. So I was I was telling you before we started the recording that uh I really loved your book. Um but I found it quite surreal. Like like al- almost like one of these uh like 1950s, you know, French um you know, Camus novels where you don't know the character's name and nothing makes sense or, you know, like Kafka's The Trial where someone's on trial but they don't know why. It, it was, it was, you're, 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 you're talking about a system, basically like the US government that is, is acting in a really insane way. And I'm not i I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist so I don't know that I could come up with the correct uh, diagnosis, but it was just—it's just really weird. And as, as you mentioned, I'm—I'm I'm pretty sophisticated, and, and not that much surprises me. And there was a lot in your book that surprised me. So if, I want to begin by just asking you. So you're—you're—you're you're, you're a lawyer. You're not a book writer by by profession. What got you interested in in the topics of what you call the rigged economics of meat and dairy?
1: Well, I, I suppose in some ways it—it it was the fact that I'm a lawyer that that brought me um to to writing this book. Several years ago I sent an email to a bunch of friends with a with a link in it to a video about factory farming. And I and I asked people in the email, let me know what you think about this. I'm I'm curious to know your thoughts. And I got I got sort of the whole range of responses you might expect, but one of the more interesting ones came back from a a friend who is a law professor and dean of a of a major law school. And he said that in his view, the the imagery in the video was disturbing and highly inappropriate, but but the behavior that it depicted on the part of humans was was illegal, and for that reason, that made it anomalous, uh, exceptional, and and not evidence of anything systemic, uh, and therefore not a problem.
0: Hmm.
1: And uh, I found that I found that response to be one of the more um, disturbing responses I got, uh, and I actually didn't know whether he was right or not, because uh, five or six years ago, before I started looking into this stuff, I I didn't know what sort of protections existed for for farm animals, but I started digging around, and uh, uh, as a lawyer, I had access to some pretty good legal resources, and what I found really shocked me, and that was that in the last 30 years or so, animal food producers in this country have embarked on a very aggressive and very systematic legislative campaign to, to pass laws, mostly at the state, but in some cases at the federal level, that have uh, emasculated all anti-cruelty protections that once existed for farm animals, and in many cases have made it difficult or impossible for consumers to investigate, criticize, or sue the, the people, the, the large corporations who produce meat and dairy in this country.
0: So it sounds like you, you initially came at this from a kind of a, an ethical perspective around, I did. around animal cruelty and factory farming.
1: I did. I, I, I was initially interested in the ethical issues, and it turned out that that blossomed into a much larger um, interest in the, in the economic issues because all of those laws that I've described have, have an economic purpose, and that is to protect the profits of the meat and dairy industries. And those laws don't protect consumers, and they don't protect animals. They protect the, the, the industries.
0: Okay. So I'm, I want to dive into some of those laws, but before I do, I feel like I, I, I would be doing a disservice to our listeners by not telling them that you have a solution. And we're not going to talk about it now, but this is not – because I've just you – know when, when we talk about sort of intractable, intractable problems like this – you know, it's like we're just we're just going to like my, wallow in the mire of of this insanity. But you do have some very very simple, elegant, and powerful solutions, which we will get to. But I just I wanted to give that kind of ray of hope before we before yes. we go into the tunnel.
1: So the we're first not just going to wring wring our hands uh, helplessly.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the, one of the first things you talk about is something I had never heard of called checkoffs. Can you can you tell us what checkoffs are, how they operate, and and what their effects are?
1: Yeah, these, uh, these have nothing to do with the uh, Star Trek character. These <laughs> uh, checkoffs are uh, like when you check a box. They they originated at a time uh, when when these programs were voluntary. So a, a producer who wanted to participate would check a box to indicate the voluntary participation. But today they're mandatory and tax-like. These are programs that Congress passes. To boost sales of particular commodities, they exist for a number of commodities, not just meat and dairy but but other things like uh, sugar and cotton. but meat and dairy get by far the most money uh, and eggs I might add so um, in a typical year, uh, meat and dairy get something like five hundred fifty million dollars uh, from checkoff programs, and fruits and vegetables get something like fifty million, so there 's about a ten to one ratio.
0: Okay. So where where, do, where does the money come from, and what is it spent on?
1: So the the money is co- the, the funds are collected at the first wholesale transaction involving a commodity. So, for example, when a slaughterhouse buys an animal from a from a cattle rancher, that slaughterhouse remits typically a dollar to a central organization that collects the funds and oversees their disbursement. And these funds are collected for beef, pork. Uh, both fluid and non-fluid dairy, eggs, and lamb, and the 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 the, the very important component of the way checkoffs work is that, notwithstanding that that the apparatus is largely uh, a, a construct of private industry, they are overseen and largely managed by the federal government acting through the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The reason that is important is that the U.S. Supreme Court has said in a very important case uh, just eight years ago that when a checkoff program speaks, that is, when it says something like, beef, it's what's for dinner, or milk, it does a body good, or pork, the other white meat, that message is the message of the federal government. So as a matter of law, when you hear beef, it's what's for dinner, or when you see it on TV or on the Internet, What you are seeing, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, we're hearing, is the USDA telling you to eat more beef. That is why that is such an important legal concept. Hmm.
0: So so this this is, you know, I'm trying to put this into any other context, and I'm I'm, I'm struggling a little bit, but this is like I have a small business, and so I'm going to spend my marketing dollars on my business, but, but instead a whole bunch of us who are all in the same business pool our money the, the government now forces us to do it but then the government does our marketing for us as if it was it was a public service announcement as opposed to a, a a commercial advertisement
1: that's that's sort of a good way to look at it however it's it's even private industry is fond of saying look we're spending our own money so 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 don't bother us you know we, the slaughterhouses who, who who remit this tax, are actually uh, funding this program. But in fact, the reality is: research shows that that one dollar per animal that is remitted at, at that first wholesale transaction, that actually gets passed down all the way to the consumer. So ultimately, the consumer pays that one dollar, or as economists say, the the incidence of the tax falls on the consumer. So it's actually not even accurate for industry to say as they do that, that they are funding these programs. These are these are tax like programs mandated by Congress with a burden falling on consumers.
0: In other words, that there's nobody who could opt out and say, I'm going to I'm not going to put money into the checkoff fund and therefore I will be more competitive.
1: That's correct. He, the 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 case that I described, Johans versus Livestock Marketing, says if you're a producer in any industry covered by a checkoff program, you do not have the option to simply opt out. You have to remit that tax, and then if you're a if you're a rational producer, you simply pass that tax on to consumers down the line, and they end up paying it for you.
0: Wow, how come I don't hear outrage about this from industry the way I do about healthcare?
1: Well, because these programs help industry in incredible ways they are just incredibly valuable for so i mentioned that that meat and dairy raises about 550 million dollars each year to spend on marketing programs based on the data that they that those industries themselves release they get about an 8 to 1 return on their investment so for that 550 million they see about 4.6 billion dollars each year in extra sales of animal foods. So the reason they don't complain is that these programs represent an incredible boon. It's a, it's a literally a tax that, it's a tax that goes into advertising their goods that they don't actually have to pay because ultimately the consumer pays it. it it's hard to imagine anything, anything better.
0: Wow, I'm trying to remember. You know, I'm I'm a marketer by profession. I'm trying to remember the last thing I did that got an eight to one return on investment.
1: It, it's hard. I mean, anybody would be thrilled with that kind of return, wouldn't they? It's just incredible.
0: So, so what makes these checkoffs so effective? Is it just that it, that we think it's the U.S. government, or it's it's the the repetition? What what? What, what makes I think, them work like
1: that? I think it's a combination of things. First, they spend incredible amounts of money. the The dairy food, uh, the, the the dairy producers alone spend almost four hundred million dollars, and and they use a, a large portion of that, about fifty million, to market to kids in schools. So, there, a lot of money is being spent. There is a there is a constant bombardment. There is no one in this country who is not heard the expression, milk does a body good, or who, nobody who has not seen milk mustaches on various celebrities, the Backstreet Boys, you know, <laughs> Clint Eastwood, you name it. And, and these programs are just very, very pervasive. They also, one of the other things that checkoff programs do that is very effective is they, they fund and disseminate research that is designed to show that animal foods are healthy And as you know, because of your background in nutrition, uh, there is a large volume of clinical research in the last several decades that shows the reverse. But it is is certainly possible to carefully design studies that that can be cited for the proposition that animal foods are either healthy uh, or not as bad for you as we thought. And that's what these checkoff programs do as well. And that creates sort of this, this... is false sense in the medical community that there is some controversy over whether animal foods are, are good for us or bad for us. Just the way, you know, a, a few fringe scientists have created a, a false sense of controversy over whether climate change is really happening.
0: Right. Now, I have some uh, sort of semi-technical questions about the, how they fund the research. And I'm not—I'm not sure you went into it in this much detail, but I found myself very curious. Um, one question is, you know, so in in the pharmaceutical world, I think it's now illegal to not publish the results of every study you do. So, if, uh, so a drug company couldn't run 15 uh, clinical trials and pick the one that gets good results and publish that and bury the rest. I believe that's that's not legal. Do you know in if in in this world if the dairy industry commissions 15 different studies or you know or 20 different studies knowing that by chance they're going to get some a positive outcome with one of them, can they bury the other 19?
1: As far as I know, they can and and I I don't know that anything like that 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 rule that ap- that applies to the pharmaceutical industry applies to to the food industry. The other thing, the other thing is that various journals have various policies about whether they're whether they require authors to disclose relationships with sponsors some require that those relationships be disclosed and some don't so it's, it's highly possible that research is, is, uh, can be uh, produced and disseminated without us even knowing that it's been sponsored by, by industry. Mm.
0: That was the other thing I wanted to ask you about, because it, it seemed like you, you're, you're saying there's a possibility of kind of money laundering. Um, and so help me if I, see if I understood this right. Is it, is it possible for someone to get funded by the dairy industry, say, for one study, um, and then, but they they don 't have their fingerprints on some other study about dairy like could they fund some other type of research like on you know size of plates or you know things like that and and yet there 's a there 's a uh, a quid pro quo where where, where i 'm going to get other funding so i 'm so my study 's not going to be tainted by dairy money but i 'm still you know um, doing it as a as a quid pro quo for something else does that happen
1: but- that's a very interesting question. I, I I could certainly imagine that that does happen, although I don't, I'm not aware of any uh, evidence for it. Although, of course, that's the sort of thing that there wouldn't be a lot of publicly available evidence for until somebody, um, for example, brings a lawsuit and starts doing discovery. <laughs>
0: Right. Okay. So uh, we'll keep we'll keep our eyes open for that. But,
1: but you know, in some cases, journals do require that sponsorship relationships um, be disclosed. And one of the studies I talk about in the book is something called the Siri Torino uh, uh, saturated fat study. Uh, two out of the four uh, researchers in that study um, were sponsored by by the dairy industry, and and I think it was the I think it was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and and that information was disclosed.
0: Hmm. But although, although, you know, for people like you and me, that's significant. For for people who are at the receiving end of the dairy industry's trumpets. Right.
1: For, for <laughs> it's people almost who irrelevant. Get, for people who get the sound bite, the sound bite sounds something like um, saturated fat does not cause heart disease. And that's, that's I mean, l- literally, that's what that study found, despite, despite the fact that, that the way it was designed was just um, objectionable on so many levels. And your, your colleague, uh, Colin Campbell, dis- discusses that in his book, The China Study, for example, just how, how reductionist science um, is so misleading.
0: Yep. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, then, then you start getting into uh, massaging the message and how the meat and dairy industry shape consumer beliefs. And as I was reading this chapter, it really felt like you were describing the Wild West, a, a world without law um and so one one of the examples was um uh the swine flu uh, the renaming uh, can you talk oh, about yeah. that, talk about that a little bit
1: yeah um that's that's a classic example in in two thousand nine we had an an epidemic of swine flu in in North America, and of course when something is called swine flu it's uh it's not good for the pork industry. And the pork industry objected. Uh, they they uh, reached out to the USDA, and uh, Tom Vilsack, who was then uh, secretary of the USDA, uh, responded. Um, and I'm actually going to... Um, I'd love to just read uh, two quotes from the book. The first is a quote from the National Pork Producers Council. This is what they said in April of 2009. This flu is being called something that it isn't, and it's hurting our entire industry. It's not a swine flu. People need to stop calling it that. They're ruining people's lives. Now, it's very interesting that they say that that the swine flu is ruining people's lives because 12,000 Americans actually died from swine flu. But they're talking about something else. They're talking about... (laughs) people who work in the, in the pig slaughterhouses and, and other aspects of production uh, who, are, who are seeing their hours diminished or their jobs cut. So several days after the pork industry issued that release, Tom Vilsack, USDA secretary, responds with his own press conference, and he says, There are a lot of hardworking families whose livelihood depend on us conveying this message of safety. We want to reinforce the fact that we're doing everything we possibly can to make sure that our hog industry is safe and sound. This really isn't swine flu; it's H1N1 virus. So, the USDA says to the pork industry, "You know what? Um, your sales are dropping. We're going to help. We'll change the name of the disease." <laughs> so, so this disease became known as H1N1 virus. Now, I work as a lawyer uh, in house at a healthcare company, and a couple days after this USDA announcement, our our uh, chief medical officer issued a company-wide announcement saying. Stop calling this thing swine flu. Call it H1N1. And, and exactly the same kind of thing went on in hospitals and clinics and nursing homes around the country. The, the name of the disease changed, and people simply stopped associating it with, with pigs. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, several months later, uh, 13 scientists from around the world published an article in the journal Nature in which they show conclusively that, guess what? swine flu originated in pigs, and by ignoring that zoonotic origin, we make it more likely that we will uh, make ourselves susceptible to the risk of future zoonotic diseases. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's just sort of a classic example of the USDA, um, with, under pressure from industry, messaging consumers in a way that, that literally prevents consumers for making an informed choice about what to eat and what to buy. So it might be the case that eating uh, that during the swine flu epidemic that eating pork would give you swine flu, and it might be the case that eating pork would not give you swine flu. But don't you think that consumers at least have the right to, be, to, to know of that risk and make, it, make a decision that is informed uh, rather than having the, the, the disease called H1N1?
0: It's, it's remarkable, and it's. Uh, yep. I think one of the themes of your book is, you know, if we just had transparency, then, you know, we're we're all smart people. We can, you know, we're a smart country. If we if if the the truth weren't systematically hidden, we things would be very different. Right. Um, so t- talk right. a little bit about the, uh, the animal cruelty laws. Your, 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 your friend, the dean of the law school said that the animal cruelty is, that he saw in that video was illegal and, and therefore, uh, unimportant in the big scheme of things. Was it? Is it? Uh, what did you find out about the laws, uh, around animal, how tr- animals can be treated?
1: The, 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 the truth about farm animals in this country is that in every single state, in most cases by virtue of statutes that have been passed, and in some cases by virtue of judicial decisions that make up the body of what, what lawyers call the common law, all legal protections that once existed for farm animals have been completely eviscerated. Farm animals have no protection whatsoever. Th- these exemptions that that carve out from a state's anti-cruelty laws are called customary farming exemptions. And what they do is say that if something is, is uh, customary in animal agriculture, if it's an accepted practice, then by definition it is not cruel. Uh, here's an example of, of the way one of these statutes is worded. In Connecticut, uh, in 1854, the legislature passed a very broad anti cruelty statute making it illegal to, to do anything cruel to any animal whatsoever. That law is on the books for over 100 years, but in 1996, Connecticut changed its law. They adopted a customary farming exemption, and and the Connecticut anti-cruelty statute now says it is legal to maliciously and intentionally torture, wa- maim, wound, or kill any animal, provided it's done in accordance with generally accepted agricultural practices. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty astonishing. It's legal to intentionally torture a farm animal, and that not just in Connecticut. I use that as, as an example because the wording is particularly uh, shocking. But but that is literally the state um, of the law uh, throughout this country.
0: So I, I was just uh, in England last week. You're, my family and I were were doing a bit of touring of you know some of the the castles and palaces, and and this law really sounds like something that would have come out of fourteenth century you know, monarchical jurisprudence around, you know, whatever the king does is is, is good because the king is the representative of, of God on earth.
1: <laughs> right. Right. But, you know, ironically, if you go back in time, um, protections for animals were, were better both in England and in this country uh, 150 years ago. You know, the... The, the statute that Connecticut passed in, around the time of the Civil War was was consistent with what a lot of uh, states did at that time, and it started with the movement in in England actually in the earlier part of that uh, 19th century. Uh, there was just a lot of there was there was concern that that around the, as the Industrial Revolution got underway, that that farm animals, particularly draft animals, needed protecting, and 150 years later. Uh, Lobbyists for, for animal food producers have simply come along and completely eradicated all of those protections. It's, it's just shocking. And by the way, the, the way these things work is that if a, if a producer adopts a practice and then several other producers adopt it as well, it simply becomes uh, legal as a matter of law. So, so this essentially takes from legislatures the ability to determine what is cruel, and it hands that authority to animal food producers. So if all of a sudden somebody decides it's expedient and and economical to chop off uh, an ear without anesthetic and everybody starts doing it, guess what? It's completely legal and humane to chop off an animal's ear. And, and the legislature had nothing to say about it. All the legislature did was adopt a sort of a, a broad customary farming exemption.
0: Right. You guys are the experts, not us. So we, we trust. <laughs> right. you.
1: Yeah, which is which is like it's like letting nursing homes decide uh, the definition of elder abuse. You know, it's something that you just never would see in any human context.
0: Mm. So. So, there have been bad laws before and in in our in our country, when we have bad laws, people rise up and they demonstrate and they lobby and they march and they donate money um, but there there seems to be something different about the um, the fight against animal cruelty and and factory farming practices and then you refer to those as the ag gag laws can you Can you talk about that and and uh, I, I just i just found you know I, I know about it it's in the news, but just it just feels very unbelievable
1: sure so ag ag gag laws refer to this species of law that makes it uh, that criminalizes conduct that is aimed at investigating the production of meat and dairy so for example, it makes it uh, illegal to lie on a on a job application to a factory farm in some cases these laws make it illegal to to film or take photos at factory farms. And in some cases, they even make it illegal to take a photo from across the street. So if, you, if you're walking by a factory farm and there's a chain link fence and you take a photo, in some states you can actually be prosecuted. And uh, I remember seeing on uh, Will Potter's blog, uh, the author of Green is the New Red, that somebody actually had been charged with this uh, in the last six months. Well, luckily only seven states have adopted ag-gag laws and as these laws increasingly get on the, the, the public's radar and we're aware of them, legislatures are increasingly defeating them. So in the last two years, 12 states have actually defeated ag-gag laws and hopefully we're reaching a turning point where we won't, um, these will not continue to be passed at the state level. Mm-hmm. But you never know. these These industries are incredibly powerful they spend a lot of time and a lot of money um, getting what they want
0: right so um, wh- wh- let's 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 talk about the economics now because we you know we 've dealt with some of the legal insanities and your book is called Meatnomics. It's a, at, at the bottom this is about money um, so wh- one of the things that that really struck me was your um, your interpretation of the, the U.S. government's um, pronouncement on food, which is, avoid unhealthy food, but please buy more of it. Can you talk <laughs> okay. about how the, the, two, the two different agencies of government are at odds and, you
1: know, yeah. around this? It, it's actually the same agency. The USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, has two goals that are often in direct conflict. One goal is to promote the sale of animal foods because it has uh, its clients are uh, the the producers in the animal food industry, and its other goal is to give Americans advice on uh, uh, nutritional uh, uh, to, to provide Americans with guidelines on nutrition and, and essentially tell us uh, what we should eat and, and in what quantities. These are often in conflict. So, for example, uh, I, you know, one example that I give in the book is the uh, the USDA uh, has has published a brochure which suggests that people should eat less cheese, which is a good idea because cheese is high in saturated fat and cholesterol and these cause heart disease. Uh, yet, at the same time, the USDA, the same agency, engages in this uh, very heavy marketing campaign to sell uh, both to sell uh, cheese and dairy in schools. And in some cases, even the USJ has teamed up with Domino's Pizza to sell, uh, to, to create pizzas with, with more cheese on them than previously. So one part of the USDA says eat less cheese, the other says eat more cheese. And we see this in many, many examples. Uh, it's, it's an agency that is just, uh, it's got a schizophrenic personality. That's the only way to describe it.
0: Uh, and, and so is, is there anything that you know a president could do, or like where, where does their mandate come from
1: The, the best way to, to solve this problem would be to remove from the USDA the authority to provide nutritional guidelines and to, to to give the Department of Health and Human Services or HHS exclusive control over giving Americans nutritional advice, and let the USDA go to its main, uh, go back to its main purpose, which is to help Help the agriculture industry. Period. Just let it let it do what it what it was created to do, and and don't confuse the issue by by having it tell us what we should eat.
0: Great. All right. So let's let's really look at the numbers now. So I'm I'm going to read um, the first. Paragraph of your introduction, which which really got me, it says: Imagine a bakery that sells every cake, pie, or loaf of bread for a dollar less than it costs to make. It's a challenging business model, to say the least. But instead of going out of business, say the shop flourishes and expands, adding more ovens and increasing output for years. And um, say that's impossible, right? But not for America's big producers of meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. So you're you're talking about an entire industry that's defying gravity it's defying the basic laws of economics they are selling things cheaper than it costs them to produce how the hell do they get away with that
1: they they get away with that because uh, our state and federal governments give them subsidies of about 38 billion dollars each year and to put that number in perspective it's about half of what all states spend on um unemployment benefits to to Americans each year is is just a massive number.
0: Okay. So um, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of an intelligent response to that. It's uh, my my words are failing me. So so the, the US government is wh- like what's the rationale? When did this start? First of all, like this doesn't seem like something that, you know, a rational society would have just decided one day. Where, where well, does this come from?
1: The, the the idea of supporting agriculture from a policy perspective uh, came into being uh, in the mid 1930s in response to the Dust Bowl crisis, and uh, it was one of FDR's solutions. the The support initially was did not take the form of direct cash payments; it took the form of uh, supply management, which is to say, controlling output in order to keep prices stable. And supply management was very effective uh, and stayed very effective for a very long time. but um, there are you know economists have different perspectives on on what's going to work. and around around the time of the Reagan administration, supply management um, fell out of favor and was discontinued. And it was about about that time, uh, during the Reagan years, that that subsidy, the direct cash subsidies, were were increased uh, in a significant way, and um, we've sort of never we've never turned back. They've always uh, it's just gone up more or less year over year. Every every four or five years, we pass a farm bill um, that just has um, massive, uh, for lack of a better metaphor, pork in it um, to, to make everybody happy. To, to, to put that 38 billion dollar number in perspective that's the number given to meat and dairy and that includes a lot of things besides direct subsidies it includes subsidies to feed crops like corn and soybeans uh, which which have to be included because with, with feed cheaper obviously um, cattle and pig producers uh, can can raise their animals uh, more more cheaply but to compare that number 38 billion to the number that the federal government, Spends on subsidies to fruit and vegetable uh, producers, which is about 17 million dollars, which is not even a statistically significant figure in comparison. That the fruit and vegetable subsidy figure is 0. 0.0004 of the meat and dairy subsidy. It's it, there's, <laughs> it's just not even relevant. So that gives you an idea of our of our uh, government's priorities, uh, as expressed through lawmakers who are. Who are on the receiving end of very aggressive lobbying from from animal food producers?
0: Right, and by, by lobbying, I assume we also mean co- campaign contributions, yes, dinners, right. support, um, support. So it's really, um, you know, the, a a um, a reinforcing system. That the more right. the more money they make, the more money they get to spend on, you know, influencing the political system.
1: That's right. And, you know, we talked about an eight to one return on investment for checkoff programs. There, there is a study that, that looked at the return on investment for, um, animal food producers who, who give campaign donations to, uh, Congress members. That return on investment is something like two thousand to one in the form of subsidies. So, uh, that study found that if, you know, if you, if you give a thousand dollars to, to your congressman or woman, that uh, you're likely to get a $200,000 subsidy in return, and wow. that's the way that market works. Yeah. Have
0: have um, have the foes of of this policy figured that out? That we don't need that much money to buy our congressman? <laughs> that they're, they're they're already subsidized?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah.
0: Uh, so, so you know, the 1930s was not exactly the same farm world as we have today, with giant, you know, agribusiness and multinational conglomerates. weren't weren't wasn't this set up to save like family farms?
1: Yeah, certainly, that that was the original idea, and unfortunately, what what we have seen since then has just been massive consolidation in virtually uh, every. Uh, industry in every category in agriculture and you know, dairy farms have gone from something like 600,000 farms 100 years ago to 50,000 today. So, uh, pig farms the same thing. Cattle, cattle the same thing. Uh, massive consolidation. Today most of the producers are, are large multinational corporations and today most of the subsidy monies go to these large corporations and in fact something like um I'm sorry, I forgot the actual number, but most small farmers don't 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 get to participate in in direct subsidies at all
0: uh uh-huh. so so they're actually at a disadvantage if they want to grow something else or have a different business model
1: they are and and for that reason, um many or most small farmers in this country are actually opposed to subsidies in in one poll in Iowa. Um, heavy, very heavy farming state. Two thirds of the people surveyed said they were actually uh, they'd actually like to see subsidies uh, discontinued across the board.
0: Hmm. So, all right, So let's. We, we've talked about return on investment for checkoffs. We've return, talked about return on investment for buying your congressman. Um, what, what's the return on investment for the U.S. government of these billions of dollars in subsidies? Are we getting our money's worth?
1: Well, that's an interesting issue. Um, fr- from an economic perspective, these, these subsidies don't have a significant benefit other than the fact that they help animal food producers sell more product. And some would argue that that, that is a benefit because uh, as sales go up and spending goes up, That uh, there's a uh, you know it creates economic stimulus. There's a multiplier effect. uh, It 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 creates or sustains jobs, and those are important features. And yet, on the other hand, um, there are there are certainly many negatives associated with with increased sales of animal foods, and I I talk about a number of those in the book as well.
0: Right. So let's let let, let's go there. Um, Yeah. So, you know, I mean, if, if we're, I guess if we're just looking at, uh, gross domestic product and you want to include, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the angioplasties and the, uh, open heart surgeries, that those are also economic benefits. But there, <laughs> that's right. There's, uh, you know, th- the American people are, are paying Right. So this, the, the difference between how much we pay for a hamburger and how much it actually costs society to produce that hamburger are known by economists as externalities. So, so what are the biggest externalities that uh, are not being paid by the uh, animal food producers that that, that we're paying?
1: Yeah. I, so I go in the book. I go through and I add these up um, fairly systematically, and uh, I come to the conclusion that. That each year about 414 billion dollars is being externalized by the animal food industries, which is to say, uh, about for every one dollar of animal foods that are sold at retail, about a dollar seventy in costs is imposed on society. To to put that number, to put that 414 billion dollars in perspective, that is about half of what we spend on social security each year in this country. It is about it's about equal to the total spending by state Medicaid programs in this country. It's it's a it's a massive number,
0: and that's just the the the, the ill health effects uh, of of individuals. Does that does that also include environmental damage? Like that what do you take? That number
1: from? is about three quarters of that number, or a little over three hundred billion, is the cost of. Health uh, health-related costs associated with consuming animal foods, and it's mostly the costs associated with three diseases: um, cancer, diabetes, and heart disease, which together kill about 670,000 Americans each year, and, and which together cost this country about 900 billion dollars each year in, in things like treatment and lost earnings, et cetera. So, taking taking the portion of those costs, the portion of that 900 billion that is attributable to diet and particularly to consuming animal foods yields this number of around 300 billion, uh, in, in healthcare related costs. The other, the other 100 billion of the, of the 400 billion dollar total is comprised of, uh, environmental costs, uh, the subsidy figure that we've already talked about and, um, cruelty and, and finally the cost of fish production, which is uh, almost 5 billion dollars as well.
0: So before, before we go to the solution, I just want to ask you, specifically you mentioned Polyface Farm and Joel Salatin, who is a real hero for, to a lot of people in the sort of conscious food movement. Uh, for those who don't know, he has a, a, a small, very, a pretty small farm by, by, uh, you know, farm standards in the U.S. Uh, his animals are free range, uh, they're not fed antibiotics or hormones and he 's very proud of the of you know of of the culture he 's created and of the products he sells. You take an economic look at his farm and you say that it's it 's not a solution it 's a it 's a a tiny distraction that allows us to justify the you know the the lifestyle we we 've chosen to lead. Can you talk more about why why you don 't find his story compelling
1: yeah his his farm uses something called um, ecological rotation, and as you mentioned, it's it's all organic, and in fact, it's sort of an example of a super organic farm. and and it's it's certainly better than the factory farming alternative, but his farm only feeds about seven hundred people per year uh, because uh, Americans consume about two hundred pounds of meat each per year. And he, he produces about 140,000 pounds of meat, so you can you know, the math is pretty simple. So, so at 700 people per year, it's sort of not statistically significant. And if, if we wanted to have more farms like that, uh, we simply would not have the land needed in this country. So while, while it's sort of an interesting novelty to say we've got a 500-acre farm where we raise enough food to feed 700 people... Just where I live in Southern California, we would need three hundred thousand additional farms of that size to feed just the people who live in Southern California, and we just we, we don't the land doesn't exist to feed them, uh, and and that's only one problem. There are other problems related to the to the input output ratio on his farm. Uh, his chickens, for example, require uh, feed uh, to be to be um, brought into the system. Uh, there's simply not enough feed uh, in a pasture environment for chickens, and so when you add up the inputs and can compare them to the outputs, there's further evidence that that, that farm is not sustainable on a scalable basis.
0: So, in, in essence, Polyface is a is a, a a straw man, very much like the the pictures of bucolic farms that you see on you know chicken wrappers.
1: Right it's uh, it's an interesting thing to talk about and I think for people who buy their meat there it gives them an interesting sense of uh, self satisfaction they feel like they're that they're uh, co- that they're n- contributing less to to the problem than they would be otherwise and there's probably some truth in that and yet it simply doesn't work uh, on a large scale as a sustainable way to produce meat to to, to meet the demand. Uh, in this country, or increasingly around the world, as the rest of the world catches up to our demand level
0: mm. Okay. great, thank you for that um, so let's let 's talk about uh, solutions. It seems like you know we've we've laid out something that it seems pretty intractable what What can cut through this mess and and return us to sanity
1: well w- one of the Certainly, the, the the simplest thing that an individual can do is to consume less meat and dairy. Simply uh, exercise an economic decision or vote with your dollars and uh, choose to choose to buy less, or, or better yet, um, boycott the system completely and simply don't buy any of them. And and I, you know, the book is not meant to be a uh, uh, to advocate veganism or to explain how to how to go vegan, but there are certainly many. Um, many other books out there, and, and your book, Whole, uh, is certainly a great uh, um, a great source for people looking looking to move in that direction. Another thing that people can do—I don't even talk about this in the book, but I'll, I'll mention it briefly because I think this is a great thing to do—is you can you can personally divest your own um, stock and mutual fund holdings from uh, investment vehicles that might that might have investments in the meat and dairy industries. And here's what I'm talking about. If you've got a 401K or an IRA, and, you know, look, I'm 50. Most people around my age have, you know, you've been working for a while and you've got something. It's very easy for you to go in and look at the, the holdings of that mutual fund. And if you're if you're invested in a mutual fund that, for example, owns stock in Tyson Foods, which is one of the, you know, big um beef and chicken producers in this country, you can simply sell that mutual fund and buy a different one. So that's, that's a second step that an individual can take. On, a, on an institutional level, I propose in the book a, a fairly large tax on all foods that contain any animal food products. Now, uh, to, to give some background into the tax that I propose, I will say that in this country, we we aggressively tax things that we believe uh, should be consumed at lower levels than they than they historically have been. So uh, we tax alcohol, gasoline, and tobacco, uh, and we refer to these as sin taxes. Uh, tobacco is taxed at the rate of 70 percent on average. So the average uh, five dollar pack of cigarettes has got a like a 350 tax uh, tacked on top of it. These taxes, these so-called sin taxes, are, are, uh, serve very, uh, two very important purposes. One is to reduce consumption, obviously, because as, as the price of a good goes up, consumption of it typically goes down. The other is that they drive uh, very large um, revenues for the, for the general treasuries of both the states and federal, in some cases of the federal government that, that impose these taxes. So. The the tax that I suggest on on animal foods, which I call the meat tax, although it applies to everything, meat, eggs, dairy, and fish, is 50%, so that a $5 Big Mac would cost $7.50. And the the benefits of a tax like that are uh, in conjunction with some other institutional changes that I suggest, in particular the one that I talked about with the USDA, where uh, subsidies would be eliminated and, and control over nutritional guidelines would be given to health and human services, a, a package of changes that that is based on that meat tax could save 170,000 human lives each year in this country. It could save 26 billion animals' lives each each year. It would have the effect of removing from the road, as far as from the perspective of Carbon equivalent emissions, it would have the same effect as removing from service all motor vehicles and motor vessels in this country. It'd be like garaging every car, truck, boat, and ship in this country, and uh, we could also return to its native habitat something like 600,000 square miles of land, something like twice the area of Texas that would no longer be needed for um, a- as as uh, agricultural land to either graze cattle. Uh, or other grazing animals, or to to raise the the feed required to feed them.
0: Hmm. So, do you do you think that th- that it's possible to uh, to enact you know, such a tax?
1: I I do think it's possible, and I think that it just takes time and awareness. And it probably won't start at the fifty percent level because tobacco taxes didn't. Uh, they started much much lower, but they have been in- steadily increased over the decades. And I think that a tax like this could could certainly be passed and it could be be increased with time and we at some point we might see the the same sort of policy approach to meat and dairy in this country as we see to cigarette smoking which is a combination of very heavy taxes with um, public messaging campaigns uh, warning labels billboards radio, Advertisements, TV advertisements, all of which are designed to educate the public and and teach us that cigarette smoking is harmful to our health.
0: Hmm. And right now, even if somebody had the money to to front that campaign, it's it's against the law to uh, to attack the interests of uh, of the animal food
1: industry, isn't it? Well, it's it it has to be done carefully, but it it can certainly be done. We do have. We do have the benefit of the First Amendment in this country, and we can say things that are that are accurate, uh, and we can we can we can certainly cite to studies that show that animal foods are unhealthy. There are food defamation laws in this country. Those those laws say that if you say something whose accuracy is questionable or clearly false, uh, uh, you have defamed food, just as you can slander a liable person. Uh, and you can be held liable for that, but but we can certainly take take on the industry and do it in a in a in an accurate and careful way. Gotcha.
0: So I'm curious, um, your your book came out what a couple months ago, or
1: it just came out last month. It's last been out month. six weeks. Yeah. Ah,
0: you're still in the honeymoon.
1: <laughs> that's right.
0: So I'm I'm curious what the what the response has been from your perspective. You know, people reading it, reaching out to you like you know we're we're i feel like we're all part of, of of something it's hard to see the future from where we're at but it feels like it could be a, a movement are you are you feeling like you know I, are you optimistic
1: i i'm yes yeah, there's been a very positive response um half a dozen uh periodicals have reviewed it and have given it favorable reviews huffington post said it was superbly researched and it deserves a prime spot in the library of anyone who cares about food politics. veg news called it riveting, etc. So there have, been, there have been very positive reviews. W- wherever I have gone, I've, I've, I've now done a book tour that's hit um, more than 10 cities. In, in every city where I, where I talk to crowds, people are, are very excited about it. In some cases, people tell me they're, they plan to change their diet after hearing um, what I've said in, uh, in my talk and in the book. And I do think that there is a, a, a growing groundswell of, of interest. And, uh, you know, I put the tax concept out there, knowing that uh, taxes are, are unpopular and it's something that is going to take a lot of uh, legwork. But I thought that, that starting the dialogue and the discussion would be helpful and maybe some people will, will get around it and, and talk about it. And, and certainly I'm starting to see a little bit of that.
0: Right. But you, I, you didn't mention this, but you also give people a cookie. With the uh, everyone gets a tax credit or or money in their pocket. Based, yeah,
1: I, 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 in order to address the concern that a that a tax of this nature would cause people's food budgets to go up, and many people simply can't afford that, I also advocate giving everybody a tax credit in in about the amount that the that the tax would cost them, so that at the end of the year. They, their food budget would not change at all. They would spend the same on food, but what would happen is something like uh, 44% of the uh, animal foods that they previously bought, uh, those dollars would now be spent on, on plant-based foods.
0: Right. And, and the idea here is that this, this, is not, this is not manipulative. This is unmanipulative. right? This is just oh. trying, trying to get back to the real costs of things.
1: We're, exactly. We're trying to to level the playing field and to to give to encourage consumers to make decisions about food that are guided more by accurate price cues than by inaccurate price cues. And the price cues today are are completely false and misleading because they're based on these um, artificially low retail prices that don't account for the cost of the goods.
0: All right. Well so the book is Meatonomics by David Robinson Simon. Um if you don't know much about this issue, you should absolutely get this book and devour it. It is uh you know, it's, to me it's as it's as important and and comprehensive a look at at, at meat eating life on this planet as uh Diet for a New America by John Robbins was for for millions of us uh you know Two or three decades ago, um, if you really know a lot about this issue, uh, like I feel like I do, you need to read this book because you will discover a whole bunch of things you didn't know. You know, your your, your legal perspective and your economics chops um, really add something to to our body of understanding that, that really had been lacking. You know, we 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 can we can talk about it in in vague terms, but you really hit home. With with the details and put it all together for, with, with a perspective that that was really lacking before this. So I really want to thank you for for taking the time to uh, to do this labor of love.
1: Oh, well, well, uh, thank you very much for uh, for saying that. I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. All right. So, uh, meatnomics. You can get it pretty much everywhere books are sold. Um and do you have a, a website or where people can go to find out more about you or to, to find out if you're speaking in in their city?
1: I, I do. There is a website at com, and it's got uh there are blog posts and event listings and book excerpts and all sorts of uh great stuff.
0: All right. Well, David Robinson, Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: Thank you very much, Howard. I really appreciate it.
0: Okay, take care.
1: You too.